we looked at the New Testament pattern of how a congregation is to be organized and how it functions and how it works, we do see indication that there is another official role that is appointed amongst congregations, and that is the role of a deacon. We see this in a couple of passages. In Philippians 1 verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. When Paul introduces that epistle to the Philippian congregation, he addresses to the saints, that is, to all the Christians, and then he specifically addresses also the elders, who we know quite a bit about. We've studied that quite extensively, and also the deacons. And so the deacons seem to be a group alongside the elders that have a function and a role within the church. We can see this further in the fact that 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 12, I'm not going to read all of that right now, uh, we'll get to this passage, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But after Paul has given the qualifications to Timothy of who is qualified, the qualities to look for in a man who can serve as an elder, he then goes on to discuss the qualities, the qualifications of a deacon. So the very fact that deacons are mentioned with elders in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, that they are a position that has qualifications to be a deacon, shows us that the role of a deacon is an official role within the New Testament congregation. But be that as it may, we might still ask the question, what is a deacon? What does a deacon do? Who are they? What's the word deacon even mean? And so that's where we're going to begin our study. Lord willing, over the next few Sundays, I've got today and the next two Sundays at least, and I plan on doing a three-part series on deacons, and Lord willing, we'll get to the idea of um, what deacons do, the official role of deacons within a congregation. We're going to, Lord willing, cover the uh, qualifications of deacons, but I think it's important before we do those things to even ask this question and attempt to answer it, what is a deacon? Now, when we look at some of the other roles, for example, when we consider the role of the elder, um, I gave a lesson, I know it's been several years back, so if you don't remember it, that's perfectly okay, but I had a lesson that was entirely about the titles that are found for elders, because we actually find three titles for that role of leadership in the New Testament. We find them called elders, we find them called overseers, and we find them called shepherds. And when we look at those titles, elder and overseer and shepherd, then we get, at least in a brief view, a description of what they do, what that office is all about. That's what a title should do. A title should tell us what the role, what it does, what its function is. The title evangelist tells us what an evangelist primarily focuses on, evangelizing, sharing the good news. And the same is true with the word deacon. The problem is the English word deacon is only found a few times, but it is actually found in the Greek many more times. The word deacon, as we're going to see, is not a familiar word in the English language, but the concept of what this word means is something that I hope is familiar to all of us. And as we study this idea, I think it will help us understand the basis of what a deacon that will be an official deacon in the church will probably be focused on. But as I've studied this, and as I hope to show this morning, it will also show that every single one of us, while we will not all serve as appointed deacons of a congregation, 
This applies in some way to all of us. All of us, as the title of this lesson, this morning's lesson is, Everyone's a Deacon. I hope that makes more sense as we go through the lesson. So, as we talk about this idea of what is a deacon, let's, we're going to spend some time talking about that word. That's not a word that we use every day. It's not a word that we use in pretty much any conversation other than a religious conversation about church leadership or church organization. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is deacon is not actually an English word. That word that we see there that we read, that was not an original English word. What that is, is that is a transliteration, not a translation. A transliteration is simply when a translator takes something from one language, and instead of translating it, instead of interpreting it into their language, they basically just use, they create a new word out of that word. They use the same alphabet or the corresponding letters of the alphabet and create a word. This happens a few times in the Bible. For example, the word baptize or baptism, that's not originally an English word. What the early translators did is they took the Greek word baptisma or baptizo, and that word means to immerse. If they would have translated that word, they would have written something like to immerse. But instead, they just created a new English word, baptize or baptism. And now we recognize that word very well, but that is a transliteration. They just basically used English letters in place of the Greek letters. And that's exactly what has happened with the word deacon. The word deacon is a transliteration of the word, Greek word diakonos. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I always try and mention that. I don't try and pretend to be a Greek scholar. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand the Bible. But this is one of those uh, passages, one of those concepts, that using some of the tools that we have available to us, Greek dictionaries and Greek lexicons, we can learn quite a bit about this word and this idea. Because the, Greek, the English word deacon, is only found a handful of times. For example, I typically use the English Standard Version. The word deacon only shows up three times. Philippians 1 verse 1, 1 Timothy 3 8, 1 Timothy 3 12. But the word that it's transliterated from, diakonos, that is a noun that is found 29 times in the New Testament. That's a lot more than three times. This is a word that's used frequently in the New Testament. When we look at some of the related words, for example, when we look at the verb form of this Greek word, it's used 37 times in the New Testament. When we look at a very uh, closely related noun, diakonia, that is used 34 times. Together, this idea, this deacon or deaconing idea, is found 100 times in the New Testament. This is not an obscure concept. This is not some minimal idea. This is a heavily taught concept in the New Testament. So clearly, it's something that's very important. So what does this word mean? Well, that word diakonos, that from which we get deacon, typically, in most of these other occasions, is translated as servant or minister. Now, that's one of those I'll make a point here. Um, we are, we're familiar with the word minister, but unfortunately that word has developed a new uh, concept over time. If you talk about a minister today, most people think of a preacher. When I tell people I'm a preacher, they might then say, oh, you're a minister. We, we think of minister as an official position. But really the word minister is synonymous with the word servant. And we see that in some of the other ways that it's used. Uh, same with diakoneo, the verb form. That is typically translated as to serve or to minister. 
in an active sense. Not surprisingly, the other noun is ministry. So we've got two nouns. We have the servant, or we have the service, or the minister, or the ministry that they are a part of. So clearly this word is used frequently in the New Testament. Now, I don't think that those are words that are very hard for us to define. We understand what a servant is. We understand what service is. But still, maybe to help us a little bit further, we'll look at some of the Greek authorities, some of the dictionaries that can help us out. One that I like to use is Mounts' Expository Dictionary. And he says of this noun, the noun that we get deacon from, that it is one who renders service to another, an attendant, a servant. Or he also says this has the idea of one who waits on tables is a part of the conceptual sphere of diakonos, but the word includes much more. That's an interesting side thing. Uh, on those pamphlets at the back, there's a list of all the verses that include one of these words uh, in them that you can study on your own time. And if you do that, I would encourage you to try and notice how many times that word is used in relation to what you might call table service or to food. We use this same concept in our own vernacular, typically. When you go to a, a, a restaurant, uh, sometimes we call them a waiter or a waitress, or sometimes we often call them a server. Now, when we talk about the server at the restaurant, we don't think of someone that is a slave. We don't think of someone that is a servant beneath us. We recognize that that person is providing a service. What are they doing? They are serving us our food and our drink. They are waiting on our table. That's why they are called a waiter. That's what this word in a very generic meaning refers to. Someone that provides a service. Someone that serves the needs of others. Another um, Greek lexicon says that generally in uh, other Greek writings, one who is busy with something in a manner of assistance to someone is how you would define a deacon or this diakonos. It is one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction, an agent, an intermediary, or a courier. That's an interesting and helpful definition, the idea that uh, you, you're starting to see, I hope, that this word can be quite broad, it can be general, it can refer to a waiter of a table, it can refer to someone that's a go-between, it can refer to a courier. That might be how it's used in Romans 16. Um, this has caused all sorts of questions amongst people. There is a woman named Phoebe that Paul discusses there, and he calls her a diakonos of the church. He calls her a deacon of the church. Now, typically that's translated as servant, but it's the same word. And so some have said, see, you can have women deacons. Now, we'll talk about this more when we get to the qualifications and the role of deacons. But this definition here may help. Phoebe may have been who Paul used or one of the people Paul used to be a courier of the message of the letter that he wrote to the Romans. And so she was a servant. She was a courier. That's what Paul may have very well been saying. Or it's one who gets something done at the behest of a superior. In other words, an assistant. So a deacon, a servant, can be someone who assists someone. They provide some form of assistance to another individual or group of people. The definitions for the verb form are obviously very closely related upon this. To, uh, the Mount says it is to wait, to attend upon, to serve. It carries the basic idea of serving as exemplified in serving at a table or serving individuals. And also, it is generally in reference to render service in a variety of ways, either at someone's behest or voluntarily and frequently with suggestion of movement. So all of those definitions, all of those official descriptions 
whenever I do word studies and I study a concept like this in the Bible and I look at the different renderings and I look at the different Greek dictionaries and all of those, one of the things that helps me is to try and put all of that together and maybe put a definition, not a technical definition, but in my own words, what do I understand this word to mean? And if I were to define this word just in my own words, I would simply say that a deacon, this diakonos of the New Testament, is a willing servant who expends time and energy to serve and meet the needs of other people or of another person or group of people. A deacon is not necessarily a slave. There are words in the New Testament that refer to slaves and to bondservants. And we are frequently in the New Testament called the bondservants of Christ. Paul referred to himself as the bondservants of Christ. That's a metaphor that we can use. But a deacon is not necessarily, or they could be, but they are not necessarily a slave. In fact, the idea of a deacon, this diakonos, typically carries the idea of something that is willing, something that is voluntary. And I do think that's important when we get to the role of the official deacon, of a deacon of the church. They are not the slaves of the church. And neither the congregation nor the elders nor the preacher or anybody else are their taskmasters. They are willing, voluntary servants of the church. But a deacon is also someone who expends their time and their energy to provide a service to another person or group of people. In other words, what does a deacon really do? A deacon, a servant, helps other people meet their needs. I think that is what is truly at the heart of service. That is what is at the heart of being a servant. That is what is at the heart of being a deacon, whether generally speaking or officially as a deacon of a congregation. The heart of being a deacon, of serving, is helping other people who have needs to meet those needs, both physical and spiritual. And so as we consider that topic, obviously we're thinking of this in terms of getting to talking about official deacons in a church. But today for our time, I want to talk about this, how this word shows up in the rest of the New Testament and how this is really something that applies to all of us. Because if we want to have deacons that help us and uh, provide a service that aid the congregation, we all need to understand our role in serving and in service in the Lord's kingdom. And as we look at the New Testament pattern, and as we look at Jesus' kingdom, as it is revealed in the Gospels, as it is revealed as the inspired writers uh, write the various letters of the New Testament, we find an incredible kingdom. It is the everlasting kingdom that is promised from the Old Testament. But we find that it is a very different kingdom because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where greatness comes through service. Now, as we talk about service, we might look at the office of the deacon and realize that that's a difficult subject. We don't know exactly what it all means and what it all entails, and we have to really study and think and read and meditate on that. But while that may be true, the basic concept of service is not a difficult concept. In fact, it is at the very heart of Christianity. Remember in Matthew chapter 23, someone had come to Jesus and they had tested him by asking him a question, what was the greatest commandment? What was the first and great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus is asked about the great commandment, he quotes from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is where it all begins. What service to God looks like is wholehearted devotion. We give everything that we have. But Jesus built upon this because a right relationship with God will always result in a right relationship with our fellow man. You cannot divorce these two commandments. You can't say, well, I've got the first one down, so I really don't need to worry about the second one. The second one must be less important. They go hand in hand. If we don't have a right, proper relationship, as far as the way we behave and the way we act towards our fellow men, what that really shows is we don't have a right relationship with God. So the vertical relationship has to be there, as does the horizontal relationship with others. And so Jesus, as he answers the man's question and says, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he says, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you love God wholeheartedly, and you love other people. And he says, on this hangs everything. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. If you wanted to sum up all of the 613 specific commands of the Old Testament Mosaic law, you could sum it up generally by saying, love God and love men. What that will look like is obeying God and serving men. And while there is much difference between the Mosaic law and the New Covenant law, while there are differences in worship, while there are differences in who's included, while there is difference in leadership and how it is specifically we are saved, the same basic concept is true in New Testament Christianity. If you want to sum it up, you love God and you love man. You love God and you obey him. You love God's creation and you serve others. In fact, that idea of service really gets at that whole concept. How do we love others? Maybe we could talk a lot about that, but at the core of loving others is serving them and their needs. And it's not just all people. Jesus also said in John 13 and 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said one of the greatest indications of true disciples, of my true followers, is that they will love one another. Clearly, loving one another and loving our fellow man is a key component to New Testament faith and Christianity. And as I said, while there may be a lot that goes into that, at the very foundation of loving one another, that's not just we feel emotionally disposed towards other people. That doesn't mean you just have warm, fuzzy feelings about other people. But one thing that we can do for all people is serve and help. And Jesus shows this in his kingdom. Now, in Greek culture, service was not highly regarded. From what I've read of commentators and other historians, the writings that are available from Greek culture and the Roman culture during the first century, servants were not highly esteemed. Serving other people was not something that was noble and good and nice. It was lowly. And it really wasn't that great. Really, if you wanted to be great, you were served. You raised to a position of prominence where others served you. And if we're really honest, while we may not be quite as blunt about it as the Greeks and the Romans were 2,000 years ago, we feel the same way. Western society is no different. 
People don't want to serve. People don't want to be humble. People want to be served. We want to make more money than everybody else. We want more people to wait on us, more people to adore us. We want people to serve us. That is our society. And to be clear, it's most societies. It's typically human nature to want to be served instead of wanting to serve. But Jesus made it very clear that his kingdom should be very different than the world. Remember in Matthew chapter 20, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and has a question for him. And he asks her, what's this question? And she says, I want you, when you come into your kingdom, to give my sons, James and John, the right hand, to allow them to sit at your right hand and your left in the kingdom. What's she asking for? She's saying, when you become king, so they believe he is the messianic king, but they're still thinking in this literal kingdom concept. But she says, when you're king and you've got all the power, I want you to give your top positions to my sons. I want them to be greatest next to you. I want them to have all the authority right behind you. I want people to serve them right after they serve you. And James and John, in one of their parallel accounts, it's them that are asking. This is what they want too. And Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand what you're asking. Now, clearly, what one of the interesting things is they didn't do this secretly. All the other disciples are apparently around and are able to hear James and John and their mother asking this question. And Matthew says that it displeased them. I can imagine that. So imagine you're a part of this group of 12 men, and here's James and John, and they have the audacity to say, hey, Jesus, when, when you're king, we think we should be your right and left hand. We think that we should be above all these other guys and all these other people that are following you. We think we should have the preeminence. That'd make me mad. It'd make you mad. We'd all be upset. And we read other places that many times the disciples argued and bickered about who was greater in the kingdom and who was greater about those following Jesus. And so Jesus responded, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. There's that word. That's the akimos. Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's another word that makes it even harder. But even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those underlined words are all related to these words that we've talked about so far. They all have this diakonos, diakoneo concept of serving and service. And notice something. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be what? A servant. And what did Jesus do? He served. Even Jesus, the eternal word made flesh, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings practiced loving service. In Luke's account, in Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, it's kind of a parallel account, but just read it for a slight difference in wording. Jesus says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table. Notice this idea of table service. Or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. In the church, in the Lord's kingdom, greatness is not about what we receive from others, but about how we serve others. And as we consider the concept of a deacon, it will help us to first realize that Jesus 
is a deacon. He is one who serves. He practices this type of service. And we see this throughout his life. We see it in Jesus' interactions with those that he meets who have needs, physical ailments, sickness, hunger, and especially who have spiritual needs. We see it when Jesus was willing in the upper room to take the towel and to wash the dirty feet of the disciples, even though he's the rabbi, even though he's the teacher, he's the master, he stoops to the lowest form of service to take care of the needs of his friends and his disciples. And we see it ultimately at the cross, where Jesus serves us by providing for our greatest need, by being a willing and voluntary sacrifice. Although he had no sin and though he deserved death, he did not deserve death. He willingly and voluntarily paid the price that we could not pay, became a sacrifice for our sins, ransomed his life for ours so that we could be forgiven. Yes, Jesus served, and he expects us to follow that example. In John 13, verses 13 through 15, after that scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. When it comes to serving others, it is not just the role of the elders. It is not just the role of church leaders. It is not even just the role of those who bear the title of servant in the congregation the deacons. It is all of our jobs. If we are following Christ, then we are servants. And we serve him and we serve his people. And this will have an impact on our eternal fate. Matthew chapter 25. I won't read all of that for time's sake, and I know that's a little bit small font there, but we, I think, are familiar with this passage. At the end of Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, and he says that on that great day, there's going to be some people that he will say, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he tells them why they're welcome. He says, you're welcome because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was, a, I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. Now these people are going to say, we don't remember doing that, Jesus. We don't remember ever feeding you or giving you drink or clothing you. And he says, when you did it to others, even the least of my brethren, I take that as you serving me. But then there's this other group that he turns to. And he says to them, Depart, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For the exact opposite reason. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Just like the first group, they don't understand completely and they say, We don't remember that. We don't remember ever seeing you in need and not feeding you and not giving you drink and not clothing you and not welcoming you and not visiting you. I never saw Jesus in that situation. But they have seen Jesus' people. They had seen their brethren. They had seen their fellow man in that situation. 
and they had not served them. And notice the word that they use, and did not minister to you. That's the same word we've been talking about. That's the verb form, the akaneo, service. We did not serve you. These people, on the final judgment day, recognize that service is meeting people's needs. And Jesus says, because you didn't do this for others, I took that as you not doing that for me. So depart into everlasting punishment. What does Christian service look like? How do we minister to others? We do so by caring and providing for their needs. We minister to more than just physical needs. That's true. But certainly, it can't be less than that. And the New Testament writers expound on this aspect of our Christianity multiple times. Romans 12, verse 6. Paul says, Having gifts then that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, there's those words again, the one who teaches in his teaching, he has more in that list. It's a wonderful list. And this is a good point to remind us, our abilities to serve vary. There are different forms of service. I know we don't typically like the jargon of denominational groups, and sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. And if you go to, if you talk to most denominational people in their church, they've got about two dozen different ministries. And they make a ministry out of about everything. And that might make us uncomfortable to talk about ministries. But the core idea is a true one. We all have ways that we serve. A ministry is just a way to serve. That's all that means. Paul talks about his ministry and the ministry of others many times in the New Testament. You can find them in that list that's on the back of those pamphlets. But they aren't all the same. And so my abilities to serve may not look and be like your abilities to serve, which may be different still from another person in the congregation's ability to serve. So let's not just make this, okay, this is how you serve. This is how everyone serves. Um, for example, you don't want me serving you by making you dinner. If you love ramen noodles, give me a call, and I'll stir you up a pot of ramen noodles if you need it. But if you really need help, if you're sick and you need a good meal, call about anybody else in the congregation other than me, because that's not going to serve you very well. But there's other ways that I can serve you. Maybe ways that other people can. And that's true of everybody here. So all of us have the ability to serve in some way. And whatever that ability is, use it. And some people are just really good at serving. And Paul says, if you have this ability, if you are talented, if you have the gift of service, then use it and use it zealously. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15 and 16, as Paul's winding down his letter to the Corinthians, he says, I urge you, brothers, to know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have, both, that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and leader. Isn't that an amazing concept of what New Testament church leadership looks like? Now, we're not told that Stephanus is an elder or a preacher or someone specific. What we know is Stephanus and his household were some of the earliest converts there in Corinth. And we know that they served the saints. And Paul says, based on their example, based on their experience and wisdom, they've been around longest, and their devotion to serving the church then the church should willingly be subject to them. Notice it's, it's not a power play. It's not I'm top dog and everyone. 
the person who is being, that everyone subjects themselves to, is someone who willingly submits to and serves the people. It's a beautiful picture in the New Testament church when we do what Jesus calls us to do. Those who are devoting themselves to the service of the saints are commendable. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. Now this is a passage we go to a lot to talk about church leadership because we find uh, the main roles of leadership in the church found here. And you'll notice deacons, by the way, are not mentioned here. But it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that is the elders, and the teachers. Those are the main roles of leadership in the church. The apostles and prophets, we are still using the foundation they gave us in the scriptures. And in today's term, we studied this when we studied elders. We still have teachers, elders, and evangelists or preachers. And the thing that ties all of those together as far as leadership in the church is what do all five of those have some role in doing? That is teaching. The teacher is kind of the foundation there. They all provide teaching. Now the deacon, as we'll see when we get, not to get ahead of ourselves, but when we go through the roles and qualifications of deacons, they don't have to be teachers. can be, but they don't have to be. But the deacon is also not a leader in the sense of the guider and the overseer of the congregation. That's the elder's job. Deacons are servants, and they don't have to be teachers. But notice what all these other roles do. As they teach and help build up the church, what do they build up the church for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's that word again. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When leaders lead, they do not do the job of everyone for them. They do not boss and bully people around. When New Testament church leaders are the leaders they are supposed to be, they build up and they equip the entire congregation, everyone that's willing to learn and grow. They equip them to be able to serve in whatever various capacities they have to serve. Leadership is not about filling a teaching spot. It's about helping people grow to be able to serve the kingdom. More, we'll say more about that perhaps when we get to some of the other roles or some of the other lessons. But one other thing I want to mention here from Ephesians is that when the church is equipped and when the church is effective in the work of ministry, that is service, the church grows. Notice Paul talks about maturity and the stature of fullness. We'll get to see this when we talk about Acts chapter 6 and the growth that the church experienced when men were appointed to serve. But let's hasten on to Hebrews 6, verses 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, and by the way, this is um, to set the context, Paul is, or shouldn't say Paul, we don't know exactly. The writer of Hebrews has issued a pretty severe warning in the early part of Hebrews chapter 6, reprimanding the Hebrew uh, recipients for their spiritual immaturity. They had not grown as spiritually mature as they should have. And he gives them a rebuke and a severe warning. But listen to what he does say here. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He felt that even though there was room to grow, he felt good about them that they would. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. While there were some problems among the Hebrew audience that they needed to correct, they were highly commended for displaying their love for God. And how did they display their love for God? 
they served the saints. That is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. It is not an excuse to not read and study our Bibles. It is not an excuse to not grow. But every one of us, wherever we are, in the knowledge spectrum of the Scriptures, can serve our brethren and should. And then 1 Peter 4, verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Keep loving one another earnestly. This goes back to what we said at the beginning. The heart of Jesus' commands for his people is to love God and love men. How do we love one another? Peter says, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, we don't all serve in the same ways at the same times, but all of us can serve the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's people in some way. And when we serve, when we serve faithfully and sacrificially and lovingly, not only do we all benefit, but most importantly, God is glorified. So how are we serving this morning? As we consider the kingdom of Jesus, we've already said it is a mighty, it is a powerful kingdom. After all, it is the kingdom that belongs to the Almighty God. Although it outshines every other earthly kingdom, every kingdom that can be imagined in glory and power and might, it is not a kingdom of tyranny and of oppression, so unlike the kingdoms of man. Instead, it is a kingdom of holiness and of love and of service. And every single citizen has a role to play in the service of the kingdom. Now, by the Lord's design, it is good for the church to recognize and appoint qualified men to serve officially as deacons or servants of the congregation, as we're going to continue in our series, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But it is also, and fundamentally the Lord's design, that every single one of us work together in serving one another. You might not be, now or ever, an official deacon of the church. You may never be recognized and chosen by the congregation and then recognized officially and appointed by the elders of the congregation as a servant of this congregation appointed to a specific task or tasks. But you are still a deacon because you are a servant of Jesus and thus you serve him, his church, and his people. And it is a good and noble goal for us to be working towards appointing deacons for this congregation. And I wholeheartedly believe that if we are able, when we are able to achieve that, that we will be blessed for it. But I equally believe that it is good and noble for us to work individually on our ability and our commitment to serving one another. And if we will truly do that, I believe that we will grow and that we will be blessed and that we will glorify our Lord and our God. How are you serving this morning? Are you serving the Lord? Are you serving his people? We'll bring the study to a close there. I hope that it's 
maybe whetted your appetite for the subject of the deacon. Again, this sermon is not really about the role of the deacon. I hope it provides a good foundation of what a deacon is, and that is a servant. And we will, Lord willing, get to that more in sermons to come. But I hope that it's encouraged all of us to take very seriously our responsibility to serve the Lord.